All right, Michael, thanks for being here. My pleasure. First, I want to um, thank you again because you were uh, a guest when I was at the University of Chicago, and you came in to my class, and um, and we talked about uh, libertarianism and anarchism, and it was what? great. You were really a great guest. What a bunch of horrid children. I <laughs> Willy Wonka because each one other than the last was worse, and I wanted to be <laughs> Just, just the, the next generation are just really uh, now bad kids. Didn't you think the school handled it pretty well, though? Like they didn't. Uh, for all the talk we get of the schools censoring things, I felt like, and and this is how they were with me afterwards. After you came to the class, they loved it. They were very happy about it. Oh, and I did my job. And I, I, I was trying to get <laughs> And, and I, I thought that was a positive. You know, I can't speak to how the, the school runs generally, but um, I was very pleased that, with the fact that they were happy that you were there and presenting a different perspective. And you even pissed off some of the students, and it was all okay. You know, yeah, nobody – For the people who are listening, there was one particular student – who was all ass mad because his mom's a teacher. If my mom's a teacher, you shouldn't be denigrating teachers. Like, F your mom. I don't care. She's horrible. I didn't say that to him, but I certainly implied it. I meant it. So I wanted to talk to you today uh, a little bit about your life because I, I can't say I've known about you for a really long time. I know there are people who have been following you for a long time. I sort of yeah, they're start – They're called the state. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> NSA, FBI. Um, but I started to notice you, I think, around – maybe around the time just before I was doing an exploratory committee for president. And I, I noticed a lot of libertarians tweeting your stuff. And I'm not sure I really understood it at the time, what you were doing. And I'm not sure I totally understand it now either. Uh, but that's, that's okay. Uh, but I – but in all seriousness, this is going to sound like a joke. Yeah. You didn't understand what you were doing in Congress either. Right? <laughs> no, no, I'm not even kidding. But you, when you were on my show, you're like, what am I doing here? No one cares about policy. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, I, I thought I was getting into something that ended up not being what I expected. Yeah. I'm certainly a few years into it. But um, I started paying attention to you, and uh, you seem like a really smart guy. That's why I had you come into my class. Um, I don't know who the experts in anarchism are in the world. You seem to be one of them. I'm not sure if you have like, uh, you know, some kind of pantheon of anarchist experts who are, who are alive today still. Oh, um, I wouldn't say that, right. um, so you seem like the guy, but I was curious about where you came from. Like, how did you get to this point? And, We've got it about. We've got about an hour today, um, just so everyone knows. And I just want to wanted to really dive into that because um, you seem like a really thoughtful guy. Uh, you obviously are considered a troll by many people online. I I don't know if you self describe that way. Would you say? Yeah, certainly. Yeah. So, how did you get to the point you are where you are today? Um, first, you, you are Ukrainian, right? You you grew up. Uh, well, you were born there, right? And you came here at a young age, isn't that right? Correct, at one and a half, two. Yeah. Do you remember anything um, in Ukraine? No, I mean, I, I was less than two when we left. So, were your parents 
like very Ukrainian growing up. In other words, I'm I'm from an immigrant family, and I know what it's like growing up in a family where your parents speak a different language other than English at home. So and yeah, the thing is, coming from Lviv, uh, which is the westernmost major city in Ukraine, uh, we're Jewish. So the Jewish community always, well, I want to say always, well, from my understanding, predominantly all, almost always, identifies themselves as Russian. Uh, more than mm-hmm. Ukrainian, because apparently uh, I was told the Russians are slightly less anti-Semitic. Um, so this is something that kind of I just smiled and nodded. But given the events of the last couple of weeks, uh, this has given me kind of, um, I don't want to say identity crisis, but really kind of questioning, uh, you know, what, what's, what's the situation going on over there. Uh, I'm like a modern day Joy Behar, because for the past two years, I've been planning to visit Lviv and St. Petersburg and Moscow with a buddy of mine, Chris Williamson, who's a podcaster, just to see what where I came from. Uh, that's one of the reasons I went to North Korea was basically that's the closest analog I could have gone to see what Stalinism was like it, it, with my own eyes. Um, so people have been asking me a lot for like, you know, my hot takes about what's going on in Ukraine and vis-a-vis Russia, and I don't have any insight more than anybody else. I'm extremely disturbed by what I'm seeing. Headline right now on Drudge is they just bombed a maternity hospital. Uh, I was in a car with a friend of mine who's kind of a neocon, and I just said, I hope this is war propaganda. You know, I'd much rather that mm-hmm. all of this is lies uh, than, than it is what it looks like. In fact, I had Juanita Broderick on my, my show a couple of years ago, and she was the woman who said Bill Clinton had uh, raped her and the press covered it up during Clinton's impeachment. And I said to her, and she agreed, I'm like, you know, Juanita, a lot of people have said you're lying. And frankly, I bet you'd rather you were lying. She goes, oh, yeah. She, she laughed, but she's like, yeah, I, I mean, you know, given those choices. So, I mean, coming here, we did speak Russian at home. Russian is my first language. I learned English by watching television, um, Police Company in particular. One of the very exciting moments of my life was I was in the green room at Fox, and Suzanne Summers, who was the host of that show, or sorry, um, who was one of the cast members of that show, was there, and I got to talk to her and be like, you taught me English, so... A lot of the blame is on her feet. Um, we, my parents coming from. Hey, hey, Michael, just before. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, but some people are messaging me saying your audio is maybe a little bit soft. So I don't know if you can bring, maybe bring the mic closer or, or something. I'm using the mic, so this is this is going to be is this better. Uh, I, I I hope so. I don't. know. It's hard for me to tell, but uh, where's I don't, I'm such a boomer. I don't even know where the mic is on my phone. It should be on the. You got an iPhone or? No, it's I've got an Android. It's all cracked. Uh, I, I literally, literally, Justin, uh, Congressman Amash, I have an iPhone on the floor of my bedroom that was gifted to me on my birthday in July, and I haven't gotten around to transferring. <laughs> this audio is better. Anyway, I know what that's it, like. Yeah, coming from that immigrant family, my parents knew not to send me to government school. So I went to yeshiva, which is Jew school, from pre-K through fourth grade. Uh, I think that was essential in terms of getting me a good foundation to who I am today, specifically because I was trilingual, you know, by the time I was five. And when you learn different languages as a kid, which is the best time to learn different languages, it also teaches you to think conceptually instead of um, verbally. Because a lot of times people use puns or not intentionally, they just switch the definitions of words. Whereas, uh, you know, for example, Ayn Rand, when she talks about individual rights and in the definition of, well, it is right, that people do this, well, right in the sense of correct and rights as in you know, legal boundaries or moral boundaries on behavior, the word is the same, but the concepts are entirely or largely different. 
So these are some kind of, Rand, of course, was uh, trilingual as well. These are a couple of examples that I, I think it's very helpful to me that I was l speaking different languages at a young age. And also going to a private school where there was such a commitment to scholarly learning and excellence. Uh, you know, when you, as you know, I'm sure, uh, coming from an immigrant family, your parents, I'm sure, are very hard on you to achieve in school. This is your opportunity. You know, they expected you to take that opportunity by the balls and do something with it. So uh, I was fortunate and in some ways unfortunate, you know, uh, to have that as my upbringing. Yeah. Yeah. They, by the way, some people are saying your mic's still not great. I, 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 I don't mean to interrupt again. I don't know what to do about it, but um, maybe you can take a look at it a second. But yeah, I, I know what that's like. I mean, my dad came here as a Palestinian refugee. And being a Palestinian refugee, he really um, had hard times. I mean, he came here with almost nothing. And so in my life, it was really a sense of making sure I maximized my potential, maximized everything I did, because I felt like I had a dad and a mom who came here as a Syrian immigrant who really sacrificed so much. And it seemed to me like I couldn't waste the opportunity I had here in the United States where I can get a good education and I can have uh, a real chance at, at being successful and, um, you know, setting my own course in life. Because a lot of times, um, you know, people around the world don't have that chance. They don't have those opportunities. They're just trapped. If you're, I don't know what it was like where, you know, where you were born, but certainly in the Middle East, if you're born in the wrong family um, or the wrong religion, uh, you're just on the outs. And that's it. And here in the United States, there is opportunity where someone can come in with a different background and, and make it. So I felt really compelled to work hard. Were, were you a good student as a kid? MFR, I was the best student as a kid. Let me <laughs> I was the, I'm, I'm thinking that maybe my mic is bad because I'm not technically on speaker, and I don't really know how to put on speaker because putting it on speaker is the trashiest thing people can ever do. And as a New Yorker, I know better than to put it on speaker. And I'm looking for the um, uh, uh, option, and I don't even know where that would be. Huh. Um, so I, I don't really know. I'm sorry if this is a, a situation for people. Um, anyway, so I was the first kid from my school to win the District Spelling Bee. This is in fifth grade. I was the Brooklyn <laughs> finalist. Um, I, was, I, was, I was a Spelling Bee finalist in fifth grade as well. Oh, well, I had all of I had all of Brooklyn. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you're, yeah, you're a bigger, you're a bigger place than Grand Rapids. It, it, it was a, it was a big deal. Um, <laughs> I, I was valedictorian in elementary school. The, the issue I had, and this is something that I think is still a very big deal, is I resented um, how slow the class went. Uh, so I like would never do my homework. I did not, and still did not like the idea that if I'm learning something, I have to demonstrate to this rando at the front of the room that I know it. Um, I knew very early on from watching a lot of television that much of what we were taught in school I didn't need to know because there'd be a joke on TV and none of the characters knew the answer. I'm like, wait a minute, these grown-ups don't know the answer. Why is it important for me as a kid to know the answer? So that was something I was making that connection early on. Uh, I, was in, I went to like a magnet, whatever they, they call it, magnet um, program in junior high, and we're sitting there calculating like the dew point 
and at what point like the ground becomes saturated with water. I don't need to know this. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of had issues with school, uh, even though I had good grades, I always did the minimum to get by. Um, and I, I, I'm glad I did. Uh, I, I do not think hard work is a good idea in and of itself. I think hard work is a good idea as a means to an end. Yeah. But you work hard, right? I mean, I see you for, I don't know, like what you're doing all day. You're on Twitter a lot, obviously. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, so now are you doing that on a computer or are you just sitting on your phone all day and I'm, I'm here in my underwear, uh, in front of the computer, not on my phone. Yeah. It's like, if I'll think of something when I'm walking around, I'll tweet it out. Yeah. And you get a lot of content just from people replying to you. Yeah. I mean, that's like, yeah, I'm more in my mentions than in my feed. Right. Like, uh, and sort of a, I don't know if you'd call it a counterpuncher, but it's usually someone taking a swing at you and then you're coming back at them. Um, so what would you say you were, you were like as a kid? Did you have lots of friends? Did you, were you unusual? So you were, you're obviously gifted in many ways. Uh, but did you, were you socially, um, uh, you know, well off or were you, were you, uh, awkward as a kid? Uh, I wasn't awkward, but I was very isolated for a couple of reasons. The biggest one is I went to Yeshiva Flatbush, and it's a religious school. And one of the conceits, and I still don't know the answer to this, um, is everyone in school had to keep kosher. They had to be religious Jewish, right? We didn't Mm -hmm. have to keep kosher at home. We didn't do any of that stuff. You know, I wore the outfit. I wore the yarmulke to school. But I had to pretend that basically at home, you know, we were observant. Now, I had thought that since we were Russian immigrants, the school knew the deal. You know, Russian immigrants are not observant. You can't be religious in Russia. It'd be the end of your family, uh, the Soviet Union, rather, at, at the mm-hmm. time. Uh, but I met kids who I went to school with and their moms, and they go, no, 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 they must have believed you. So this is some dispute. But the point is, I couldn't really socialize much with other kids. First of all, kids came from all over to go to school. It wasn't like a neighborhood school. But also, if they came over my house, they would know uh, that you know, the jig is up. And also my grandma, although she's very kind in many ways, was very – had that Russian, like, who are you bringing over my house situation. So I don't think I literally ever had a kid over my house. Yeah. And were you religious growing up? I mean no, besides, the, besides the fact that – so you weren't observant, but you also weren't religious. Correct. I mean did you, did you believe in God? As a kid? No. Yeah. No. And I can tell you, like, when I was a kid and we were learning about the Old Testament and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. and the Jewish concept of God, especially in the Old Testament, it's this infinite force beyond human comprehension that is everything and everywhere. And then I remember being a young kid and learning about the virgin birth and Mary and, like, that God is this infinite force, but also he's this dude walking around and somehow they kill him. And when I was a kid, this was, like, the, like the most... I could not reconcile this at all. Yeah. And to this day, that's how you feel about it generally. In well, other I'm words, not a, you're not, not a atheist, but, uh, are you, are you agnostic? No, but I, I do have problems. as do. I think many Christians do reconciling, you know, the concept of God, the father, with sure. the incarnation of, of Christ. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, obviously a wide range of views on that. Um, I'm Orthodox Christian, uh, but in our church, we focus a lot on mystery, the idea yeah. that we, the idea that we don't really know everything and we can't really know it. And 
that's one of the things I find appealing as an Orthodox Christian, uh, because sometimes when people hear Orthodox, they assume, well, this is the most, um, you know, hard line and they believe in some kind of literal interpretation. But actually, at least in Christianity, Orthodox Christians uh, tend to be um, more in the mystical side, you know, believing in uh, in faith and that we can't understand everything and you have to just accept certain things without understanding. Yeah. So, um, and you, well, I guess um, you wouldn't remember, but in Ukraine, there's a lot of orth- Orthodox Christians as well. Um, and but I'm uh, sure it was very heavily suppressed by the yeah. left. Like, yeah. I, I'm writing my next book right now, and what this, the, the early communists, like this is like the 1920s, what they got off on was getting priests to denounce God from the pulpit hmm. and telling their congregants that it's religion's a lie and to be a communist and tear off their vestments and leave the church. This is something, and then have, they had all these clergy people write letters to the editor denouncing God. Uh, so th- I mean, w- when people um, kind of appreciate or, or understand to hate totalitarianism, they don't realize how pernicious it was and how evil it was. And what's even more insane is that all these priests who were denouncing God for the sake of at least trying to get a job or a house they were still blacklisted because they came from the wrong class. Yeah. So this was a, the Bolsheviks were writing to each other, go, well, guys, we're not really being fair because we're getting them to do what we want, but they were still punishing them, and it's like too bad. So <laughs> it's, it's really, we can laugh at it now, but can you imagine this kind of system where there's a gun to your head forcing you to renounce your faith publicly? You do it, and then they're like, ha-ha, psych. So it's like, I mean, I'm not using this word literally, but it is satanic. Yeah. And what was... For you not being religious as a child, were your parents not religious? Not at all, no. Not at all. And is there is there a reason they came to that? Like they came from um, – They get religion. If you're raised in the Soviet Union where you're taught from kindergarten that mm-hmm. religion is for stupid people and it's evil and all, you know, just denounce, denounce, denounce constantly. And if you exper- experiment with religion, uh, you know, you might go get arrested or your family is going to get in trouble – where are you even going to come across this? Well, I mean, I, I don't know. Speaking to someone who's not Jewish, you know, preserving Jewish identity might be a reason why you'd feel that. So is it more of a preserving uh, when when someone like you or your family, they say they're Jewish, it's a, it's about preserving your almost your ethnic um, identity more than the more than the religious. Oh, absolutely. And there's this quote from I forget who the author was, where he said, um, if you forget you're Jewish for five minutes, don't worry, a Gentile will remind you. That's not a thing here in the States, but it's yeah. a thing there in Russia. Like, you will never forget the forgot. They will not let you forget. Oh, this is, again, the 70s. I can't speak on now. But they won't let you forget for one minute. Don't ever forget what you are. Don't ever think you're, you're a regular person. Uh, my, when my dad was in college, I've told this story several times. Like, his professor, you know, patted him on the back and told him, Ted, you're one of the good ones. And, you know, <laughs> this kind of, like, that's as good as you're going to get this kind of quiet condescension, you know, so, but again, it's not just the anti-Semitism. It's not like everyone else had a great time there and people who are Jewish were uniquely persecuted. Like no one has food. No one has, you know, warm clothes. Your phone's tapped. Every letter you write is read. You have no opportunity for your kids. So I thank God for my parents every day that they got me the hell out of there and, and, uh, you know, brought me to the States. And how, how did they get you out of there? In other words so – The trick is yeah. you have to bribe the government with everything you have. And then they, there was an agreement where you're, you're pretending you're going to Israel 
you go to Italy on a <laughs> vacation, but then you don't come back. And you have to have a sponsor family here who takes responsibility for you. In the United States? Correct. Yeah. That's what my, my dad had a sponsor family too. Yeah. He came as a refugee. Um, I didn't realize until I was like in my 30s that I'm a refugee, like technically. Because when we think refugees, we think war-torn. Yeah. Like it's an emergency. But legal, I'm a refugee. Yeah. And, and that's um, – you know, there's a sense in which when I was a kid, I was telling someone this the other day. Like my dad would tell me he was a refugee. Um, he's a Palestinian refugee as I mentioned earlier. And I never really thought about it that much as a kid in that sense. Like uh, you know, what it means to be a refugee and – what kind of life he had and what he was, what he was escaping and all that. Um, so it is, it is, um, you know, it, it, it does have an impact on you. It certainly had an impact on me when I started to understand it as I got older. Did, did it affect how you viewed, um, politics? Did it affect how you viewed, I, I mean, in some, in some significant way, or did that come from being in the United States and other experiences? Like you, you eventually, I don't know if when you got to anarchism, but you got there somehow. And was it those experiences of your family leaving as refugees or was it the experience in the United States interacting with other people here that brought you to anarchism? Well, it started with elementary school because my idol as a kid was Alex P. Keaton on Family Ties because <laughs> he was the only one on TV who looked like me. You know, like we talk a lot about how representation is important in media. Like if you're a young African-American kid, if you don't see an African-American doctor on TV, you're not going to regard that as realistic. And, you know, Obama in some sense w- was part of his election was meant to show, you know, kids of color that they can accomplish anything. So I really related to him and it really bothered me that they made him a clown on that show so I couldn't watch it. But he was little he was a smart ass. Um, he was smarter than the grown-ups. Um, and I looked kind of like him. So he really was my role my growing up. And I thought I was a little Republican. And then I also found, being a little smart ass, that by saying this in Brooklyn, it really upset a lot of people who should have been upset. So this was just, this was just gravy. Uh, <laughs> so then when I was in high school, a good buddy of mine for Christmas gave me Rush Limbaugh's book. And Rush Limbaugh was a troll in many ways as well. Like he invented the idea of using humor in a very aggressive way to upset the left. Now, I didn't really know right or left, but I knew I didn't like sanctimonious people. And it was really kind of unusual because historically, the sanctimony is the Republican Party. Like if you're going to be a mm-hmm. pro clutcher, you're going to be a, historically a Republican or conservative. But that started to change at a certain point. So it was really fun upsetting my teachers. Um, you know, just being kind of a little brush Limbaugh conservative. Then when I was in college, I found this great, um, I don't remember why I was just sitting there, uh, a laissez-faire books catalog. Andrea Millen-Rich, the late Andrea Millen-Rich, she put out this catalog for many years, and everything in that catalog was great, except for like books like Eco Scam, which no one reads. But there was so much gold in there, and, you know, I'm largely self-taught. I was a business major for economic reasons but while i was there like i read the nine volume history of philosophy i went through the bucknell library because i'm like this is a great opportunity for me to kind of make my own brain so that kind of led me to, when I, I was a cato intern in 97 i remember this very well and i was still a minarchist and james wilson who was an anarchist before me was standing there and he yelled at me he goes you're you're, you're almost there 
you just need to make that last step. I go, yeah, I've run to the edge of the cliff and I'm not jumping off, which is a good line. But in retrospect, he was right and I was wrong. Yeah. So what was it? I guess, what was the experience that where you woke up one day and you said, hey, I'm an anarchist? I don't think I can narrow it down to one thing. I, I, it, one thing that very, very much informed this was when I was a kid, and I think this is the case for every country other than the U.S. or almost all, the idea of like venerating the police was like ridiculous. Um, I, my dad always taught me that every country you go, the cops are the dumbest people looking at cops i was just like to put these people on pedestals maybe they do a hard job it's not it's, it's it is a hard job it's not a fun job but that these people should be revered made no sense to me as a kid but part of minarchism is basically giving these people like the highest level of authority over everybody else that didn't make any sense to me uh reading books like the market for liberty which is included in the anarchist handbook excerpts of it were very useful uh rand of course was very useful and just also having this increasing unremitting hatred for what governments are capable of doing, uh, which I'm sure, which I know you share as well. When you see things like what they revel in doing to innocent people, including children, what's going on in China, North Korea, I'm not talking about the states at all. When you see what governments can do when they really turn dictatorial, it's so, um, and I think Americans are decreasingly but still very naive about the nature of evil and about the nature of what evil people in power are capable of with a clean conscience. It's, it's, it's something that you and I would never imagine in a million years. I just had Lily uh, Williams on my show uh, last week, and she grew up in the uh, Cultural Revolution under Chairman Mao, where I think it was like 20 million people starved or something. And she was talking about how in villages, people would switch their dead children so they wouldn't have to eat their own kids, so they'd eat their neighbor's hmm. kids. So these are the kind of things where you and I would never have to think – we, we could sit down for 100 years we wouldn't think in these terms. There yeah. was a, a documentary I watched about North Korean refugees, and the guy was talking about when someone starves, uh, the flies are the first to know. Like you could watch someone when the flies land on their anus or their mouth. Th that's when the person is going to be dead in five minutes. Human beings shouldn't have this information. Maybe scientists, but like if you're just a citizen, you shouldn't know these things. So you know, I, I think Americans, again – are often very naive, and I think we're also very blessed to live in this country. Yeah. You know, I feel the same way about um, our life here, and I know there's, got, there's plenty of problems in the United States. So for those listening, you know, people say, oh, the United States is bad on this or that. Yes, we, we all get it. Um, but I, I think having the insight coming from a refugee family, coming from an immigrant family, and knowing the kinds of horrors that go on in the world um, really changes your perspective. And there are a lot of Americans who, because they've stayed here their whole life, they haven't really traveled around the world and haven't seen um, other places. And that's normal. That's, you know, that's not unusual. Uh, they don't know how bad it gets in other places. And, and the kinds of things that happen when you let uh, the state just run wild. And the state has been the perpetrator of the biggest atrocities in history. You know, it's, wherever you go in the world, it's, it's the state. It's a collective of people, um, often through some kind of dictator, but it doesn't have to be. It could also be through, um, you know, someone coming into power democratically. These have been the, the biggest perpetrators of crimes uh, on, on the human race. 
And that's why it's important to give them a monopoly on security, right, Justin? <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> I think that we could get into this. I don't know that I, I want to get into a whole argument about anarchism versus libertarianism. Um, I think ultimately there there's going to be some enforcement mechanism when you have sure. govern when you have governance. Um, you know, set aside the idea of the state or even, you know, even like a higher higher level governments like state government. No matter what kind of governance you have, if you have like a neighborhood association or whatever, there's some enforcement mechanism. There there almost has to be when you have people working together. Um, and I, I guess you would say that will develop organically. Is that right? Or that you don't have to – yeah. And, in, and inevitably because it's such an important concern. And, and here's another parallel like, like food, right? Like let's suppose there's some situation, some crisis situation where all the food vanishes from some area. Immediately everyone's like we got it. Like yeah. the, the speed with which uh, systems develop and even externally. Like if there's like a neighborhood where like things are going bad, like people – they're sending right now weapons to um, Ukraine. So human, human beings are very good at developing systems very, very quickly. And any monopoly, especially government monopoly, is going to have enormous incentives to do terrible bad things and few incentives to do good things. Yeah, I wanted to sit down and really think about it. Sometimes I do wonder whether the difference between, say, me and you or, or some other people is um, more semantics than it is other things. I don't know that that's the case, but uh, it is interesting to think about. Uh, how would you define anarchism if you had to define it simply? Anarchism means you do not speak for me. Everything else is application. Yeah. And and how would you define libertarianism? Uh, libertarianism. Oh, that's a good one. Libertarianism is progressivism on the short bus. <laughs> so, so better than conservatism from your perspective, but I don't. I, I, but, mean, I don't know. The short bus gets to school just the but, same. Yeah, um, I think there's certain things libertarianism does better than conservatism. I think conservatism does a lot of things better than libertarianism, and progressivism yeah. is does uh, a lot of things better than the two of those, specifically uh, winning and conquering the world. Yeah, uh, and when you say they're better, you you don't necessarily mean those are good values, or do you mean those are good values no, I that think winning more and effective? Yeah. yeah. So. But there are some progressive values that you and I both like, and there's some conservative values you and I both like. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm very much a Hayekian libertarian. Uh, I'm a big believer in spontaneous. We can go into the. Do you know what Rand said for him, about him? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've read some of it. I don't. I couldn't quote it to you. Watch out for that one. He's real poison. <laughs> but you know, uh, Rand also slammed anarchists, right? Oh, and, and she also called Milton Friedman a Stalinist. <laughs> so, uh, everything she says is true. <laughs> yeah. All, all, none of these people said nice things about each other. They also, they also did say – they said nice things and, and also said unnice things about each other um, or unkind things. I don't know if unnice is a word, but it, sh- it should be. We're both young. Yeah. We, just, <laughs> yeah. we can make up words. So – when when you're thinking about um, progressivism, I, I see you, you bring this up: the difference between a, agenda and bias. Can yeah. you expound on that a little bit? Sure. So I think it's fair to say, and I don't think most people would dispute this, 
that any journalist is going to have a bias. We all have biases, and biases are often pernicious because we're oblivious to them. You know, in this, like if you are watching your kid at a dance recital, um, you're genuinely going to think that they're performing better than they are because you have a dad's eyes and your mind is wired a certain way. Uh, if there's some, there's this expression on the internet, BEC, bitch eating crackers, where like if you hate some character on some TV show so much that look at her, she's sitting there eating crackers, like it, you know, it disproportionately rages you if they're doing something innocuous. So, um, what was the question? I'm sorry. They're just agenda versus bias. Oh yeah. So you're, you're going to have a bias in terms of uh, uh, certain things, how you perceive articles. An agenda is. When, so a bias is going to inform your reporting, and that's inevitable. An agenda is when you write the story first, then you retroactively look for evidence to fit your preconceived conclusion. And you see this over and over. An example I used, there was some girl, who, some journalist, who argued with Elon Musk on Twitter, and he hit back at her. A very, I mean, it wasn't personal. He just you know, responded to her. And her next tweet was, has anyone out there, particularly women, been harassed by Elon Musk fans. So she has already written the article and now is looking for evidence to demonstrate something to write her hit piece. That's mm -hmm. a very obvious brazen example. The fact that uh, all these reporters in unison are referring to Governor DeSantis's bill that just got signed into law today as a don't say gay b uh, bill, when the bill is about kindergartners to third grade, not teaching about sexuality uh, and, and transgenderism, kids who are like up to, from five to eight, but they're, they're saying, oh, it's the don't say gay bill. When you're a reporter couching it in those terms, you have an agenda you're trying to get over. Um, so there's many examples of, uh, if you, in fact, it'll be harder to find an article that isn't agenda because here's another example. Uh, in, if someone writes a play, right, in the first page of the play, it'll say cast of characters, Justin Amash, former congressman from Michigan, Michael Malice, douchebag from Brooklyn, now Austin, right? So in one sentence, it's going to tell you who this person is, and just so you have a heuristic in your head when they appear on the stage. They do this in article after article, and they do this disingenuously. So for example, if I was writing an article with a bias and not an agenda, I would say Joe Rogan, comma, a popular podcaster, comma, or I could say comedian, MMA commentator, host of Fear Factor, his resume is well known. But they will say Joe Rogan, comma, who has a history of racist and transphobic jokes, comma. That's the first intro. So mm -hmm. right away, they're telling the reader the lens through which you should perceive this person. And it's, extre it's extremely value judgmental. It's not objective at all. This is them programming the reader. So that's one example of them having an agenda. The goal isn't to inform. The goal is to tell the audience what they should think about this specific person. And once you notice this technique, I call it as an aside, you'll see it's, in that it's everywhere. Donald Trump, comma, who was banned from Twitter for inciting violence, comma, even if the article has nothing to do with that. So they'll do it over and over and over. And you'd say this is still an agenda even if it's subconscious? Uh, in other I words, it... I don't think it's subconscious. But I would say, yes, it's, an agenda. it's both, yeah. It's because, I mean, you could have a situation where someone... Yeah, I mean, do you think a bias can evolve into an agenda quite simply because a person's so immersed in it? Like if someone is in New York City and they're a reporter, aren't they, aren't they just around other people who have the same biases all day? And yeah, but the thing is, as, as when I, I co-authored books for people, I used to, right? So my goal was always to see things from their perspective. 
And you see this, there's lots of reporters, especially internationally, who are, are interviewers, and you never know where they stand politically because mm -hmm. their goal is to get information out of the other person. Right now, it's not at all clear what your perspective is. Obviously, I know you're a libertarian, but you're here to get me to talk and explain my views. So if you are a professional, you are going to bend over backwards to A, identify your biases, which we all have, and B, to make sure this is written in such a way that my biases aren't seen. That is, I, I think, to my knowledge, never a concern on their part. Uh, I think progressives, being the master culture in America, don't think that they're progressives. They think they're honest. And they think the opposition is both dishonest and evil. So they're not yeah. presenting an agenda or bias. They're just presenting the facts. It's a fact that Trump is the worst president we ever had and that he's Hitler and all these other things. And anyone out there is a QAnon delusional freak. If you just say that, what if Trump was like mediocre? He's like McKinley, right? He just, he just kind of sucks. Right away, you're a Trump supporter. It, it's just really, um, yeah. it's very convenient for them in terms of thinking and programming the audience, but it's completely disingenuous at best. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's progressive specifically, but I do think it's true that people on the left have a tendency more than people on the right to think that their opposition is evil. And my view is that people on the right have more of a tendency to think that the opposition is maybe stupid or naive. Yeah, and I'm working to change that very heavily. Yeah. Because it's very hard to tell me that Lawrence Tribe, you know, Harvard Law professor, Stephen Colbert, you know, any of these people are not intelligent. They're highly intelligent. They know exactly what they're doing. Yeah. So let's, um, let's take a caller, if that's okay. Um, yeah, all right. All right, D, you got to unmute. Get it together, D. Hold on. Can you hear me? Yeah. Sure. Hey, D. Hey, how's it going, Michael? Yeah, I guess I guess the couple comments I want to say is I actually think that um, culture defines a lot um, of how, how people's perspectives are. I mean, I'm obviously on the left. I'm not obvious, but, it, but I'm on the left. And oh, I kind on, of see. I love that. I'm obviously on the left. I don't know you. We do not know you anywhere in life. <laughs> no, uh, but no, but uh, no. I'm I'm saying because of, of what I'm about to say. Okay. I actually think it definitely goes both ways. I think the right wing. I think actually the right is actually pretty popular in this country um, in some ways because the media has overstepped. But I I do think on the right there is a lot of like if you listen to people like Jesse Kelly, Jack Basobiak, like. They are very apt to like call leftists like, you know, pedos and communists and people who hate right. America. So I do think there's a lot of labeling on that. And You're I right, think though. they're correct. And well, there you go. That so you support the labeling, but uh, I, I think the that uh, of people who are trying to prey on children. Yes. No, I'm no, I'm not talking about that specifically. I'm talking about like just generally saying people who are Democrats or communists. Like I don't think that's true. Oh, I don't think. That's um, true. But they're often um, Marxism. Okay, that's fine. But 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 I'm just saying that's that's labeling language, and I think the biggest difference I see between um, anarchists and libertarians is that libertarians are much more culturally, I would say, neutral. So they'll say this is something authoritarian that uh, Democrats do. This is something authoritarian Republicans do. Versus, I think anarchists um, like Michael are much more culturally right. So. If you have two situations, like I'll take the BLM protests versus the trucker convoy thing, like anarchists, I noticed were much more critical of how the police treated the trucker people than how police treated BLM, because I think anarchists are more, I would say, culturally right. 
versus libertarians are more like calling both sides. They're more critical of the police, the more aggressive the police are. So if the police were beating up BLM people or seizing their bank accounts or taking their children away or taking their pets away, then yeah, they would be very uh, um, uh, uh, aggressive against the police. The whole point of being an an anarchist is regarding the police as malevolent. The police, Kenosha burned down because the police stood down. Is he there still? No, I'm still there. I'm, well, I'm not even. I'm talking about even in terms of um, in terms of things like civil asset forfeiture. I mean, the police have been taking poor people's money for years. Like, okay. so that's not that the idea of police taking people's money and doing all that. That's that's been happening in America for years. Wait, do so, you think anarchists don't have an issue with civil asset forfeiture? I'm not saying they don't have an issue. My 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 criticism is always is always folk. I think the issue is how much is an issue magnified and how much is it focused on. I, I yeah. think I, I would I would encourage you to look more into anarchism because I don't think there is any group that is more anti-police than anarchists by definition. And I, I know you're going to have to like take my word for it right now, but I assure you that is the case. And I am delighted that I have been the main person turning the conservatives against the police in the last two years. No, I, th- I think it's a good thing. I think conservatives need to be not I'm not anti, an anti police guy, but I think conservatives do need to not just like all the every time take like the police's word for everything because police can be, be deployed. And I, I was, by the way, someone who was not for the, what police did to truckers. So I think conservatives need to think about that because you might be like going like, oh yeah, it, it happened to him, but police you, can be deployed against you too. If you arrest a priest for holding a prayer service, which is part of the First Amendment uh, right to free the assembly and freedom of religion, you're an enemy of civilization, and how you can sleep at night is beyond me. I don't mean you, G, I mean the police, of course. Yeah. Hey, hey, Michael, let's try to fix... What if you pull your headphones out and okay. just just listen to your phone directly? Are you talking? So you... Okay. Yeah. Oh, now I'm on speaker. Is that better? I don't know. Someone will have to text me and tell me, but... okay. Um, anyone text me and let me know if that sounds better. Welcome but to people... Boomer Phone, starring Michael Malice and Justin Amash. <laughs> All right. So uh, sorry to everyone. Hopefully, I don't know if Colin can help us fix the audio issue in like, uh, you know, publication when we publish the episode. But <laughs> in any case, um, and thanks for putting up with the technical issues. But so... What do you think about, and we talked about this before, I see what you do on Twitter and it's, um, you know, it's often, I mean, you've called it trolling and I have often emphasized the importance of persuasion and building trust. But my, um, I, I think you have said, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you're not really trying to persuade people. I am trying to persuade people where you and I disagree is that you think human beings unite based on agreement whereas especially after two years of data you should you should in my opinion realize that human beings unite much better in opposition nothing unites people better than a war right oh that's definitely true i don't disagree with that i don't disagree right. with that. so if i am creating a group of people who are the bad guys it unites people and persuades them a lot more than if i do some kind of 
uh, classical liberal. I put the good ideas out there and everyone comes to them. Human beings are not rational animals. So do you think what you're doing at times on Twitter is mockery? Of course, yes. And don't you feel – this is where I I have a hard time because don't you feel that – I get what you're saying about uniting people – against uh, like an enemy that's how people are people are moved by that yeah but at the end of the day isn't one of the reasons and we talked about this before that the united states is freer than other countries is because there is a higher level of societal trust i don't mean trust of the government i mean that i mean that people trust each other whereas in the old country, like where my parents come from, or my parents, yeah, they're they're always worried about their neighbor's a snitch. He's gonna go tell the authorities this or that. Uh, you've talked about this with North Korea. They have minders, right, and they've got like one person with another person working together so they can snitch on each other. Um, so there's just a general level of distrust, and when you have distrust, don't you always just spiral essentially into authoritarianism or totalitarianism like uh, i mean isn't that the isn't that the direction you move we've had two years of karens tripping over themselves to shut down businesses and boast about doing so in social media yeah this is not a trust culture as much as you and i would like it to be i do not agree at all that having a distrust culture leads to totalitarianism in my view and i'm sure you would agree to a large extent Totalitarian cultures are what cause distrust because they encourage people to spy on each other, turn each other in, have everyone be their brother's keeper. In fact, that's the law in the Soviet Union. And now in North Korea, once a week, everyone has to get up and denounce and snitch, snitch on each other. So I think snitching to some extent is inevitable. And I think it's very important. And part of the mockery I do is that to regard those people correctly as the enemy of decency. And to be not regard them as like, oh, we're just all in this together. I'm not in it with these people. They are the devil. So I guess, uh, I guess where I'm coming from, I think it cuts both ways. I agree with you that the government often is what causes the distrust. I mean, it's you get a totalitarian government or authoritarian government or even a even a democratically elected government, and they try to sow seeds of distrust. And there's some sense in which that was done with all of the COVID stuff too, right? That the people. The people who are not complying with all the things, these were bad people and you can't trust them and they're there to hurt your family and all the rest. It's, it's kind of trying to turn people against each other. Um, so I, I get that. But I also think it cuts the other way, that it goes both ways, that if you have an environment where people generally don't trust each other, they also do turn to bigger government. Um, and I, It just seems inevitable to me. Like if you – if you have a bunch of people who think their neighbors are thieves or unreliable or they're going to hurt them in some way, they're going to turn to some authority to help resolve that. They say, well, I don't well, think it has to that turn to authority. It could turn to social media. It could be public arguments. It could be there's other mechanisms. Uh, and that's what's great about having a free country is that you do have other options to handle animosity. I, I mean, I think the number of people who call the cops on their neighbors, things like that is statistically going to be microscopic. And I think this is very important that America self-segregate ideologically because I think since Woodrow Wilson, a huge percentage of the population are members of a fundamentalist faith that is intent on world domination and that there's no talking or reasoning with them. So what percentage of the population do you think that is? 
I don't know because the majority of people can't reason at all. So in Iran, they'd be jihadis. Uh, in you know the Soviet Union, they'd be proud Bolsheviks. Here, they'd be you know hardcore John Oliver listeners. They're functionally mindless, uh, and they're it's really irrelevant because it's just one mind in many persons. So they only matter in terms of democracy, but there's no reason whatsoever why a system has to be based on popularity. Yeah, and and you'd say that this is true on the right and the left. Right. There are, there are. I mean, if you I dare anyone listening to this to criticize Candace Owens on a tweet and you'll be told over and over you can't handle strong women or that you're racist. And literally, no matter what you say, they'll just keep repeating this. So there's no functional brain power there. Yeah. So you've said and I think it's related to this. You've said many times that you avoid criticizing friends. And do you mean by that just publicly? Publicly, or... I'll never do it, but also privately. You know, I, I'm if I will not criticize a friend unless they ask me. Now they've asked me for. I have lots of friends who've asked me for feedback, and I'm happy to give it. But I don't think people who are uninterested in advice are capable of receiving it. Is it because you feel like it? Well, do you feel like you have uh, a particular agenda with my friends? No, no. I mean, just generally, like with your social media and with you talked about how you do want to persuade people uh, by uniting them against essentially a common enemy. Well, I, I, don't, I don't mind persuading. That's not my goal. Right. But do you feel like you have an agenda? Um, in what, life? Like, what do you mean? Yeah, no, I mean politically, like politically. Oh, yes, uh, of course. In, in driving people in a certain direction? Yes. And, and is that – so is that related to why you wouldn't – criticize a friend who's let's suppose you had a friend who was, was doing something very wrong very harmful okay. very harmful he's to running, you. He's, he's running for congress yeah yeah, okay. a perfect example yeah you okay. want to for congress. okay and he's and he's harming other people who are your friends is is he's is harming he, other people. okay yeah he's harming with whatever he or she or whoever it is is harming yeah, yeah. other harming other people could be through their public actions it could be through whatever social media or whatever they're they're just harmful to other people who are your friends they're maybe lying about them or, um, you know, they're doing well, something that is – I mean this is past criticism. If, if someone is publicly lying about my friends, I can't be friends with this person. That's just that's, – that's so beyond the pale. Yeah. So then you'd say, OK, well, that person is just not my friend. So you could criticize that person. I, I mean I wouldn't call it really criticism. Like a criticism is like if you gave me a speech you were writing – and I'm like, or oh, you're, you asked me a podcast advice. It'd be like, Justin, you know, maybe have something different behind you on the wall or the headphones or something like that. That's useful, actual feedback. It's friendly and intentionally so. Yeah. But there's a very big difference between, you're, you know, you're looking for my professional advice in terms of podcasting and you're publicly, you know, lying and harming people I care about. I mean, yeah. I don't think these are analogous situations at all. So like uh, just a full disclosure, I think you are extremely friendly to me. Okay, I am. Um, yeah. I, you absolutely one hundred percent. So, are you saying, for example, um, let's suppose you don't like anything about this podcast? Are you saying when we finished, you would be reluctant to tell me that, like, um, like, hey, Justin, I think you should do this, or you know, you got to fix this problem, or I would not tell you that unless you asked me. No, okay. because it also seems presumptuous. Yeah, because you maybe you're talking to like. Joe Rogan tomorrow, like the biggest podcaster who's got a much – or anyone, you know, uh, who uh, you can name infinite names. So who am I 
to it, I, I unsolicited advice is rarely friendly. It's yeah. usually a, a way to like put your dick on the table and be like, I'm better than you, so I'm gonna rattle my, uh, run off my mouth. It's really like a very bad quality for people to have. Do you feel like you don't ever feel like there's a situation where someone is um, almost like an apprentice, someone who's learning? Who, oh, I have a protege. Who's like, yeah, you're learning from you, and maybe they want your mentoring, but your your but your idea is that they will they have to ask you for. The help. Well, yeah, or if it's a mentor-protege situation, there's a few kids I mentor, and then I do offer advice because that is the nature of the relationship. Um, but it's also, but my advice is often always couched in how I came to that. Um, I can do this for another thirty minutes. We're good. Um, I, it's always couched in how I came to my conclusion. So instead of me just saying, "Hey, you should do C," I always phrase it at. In my opinion, you should do C, and here is how I came to that conclusion. And I give the person as much data from my life experiences so that they can have that information as well because I am one data point, and it mm -hmm. could be that my advice is good, or it could be that my advice was good for me only, or it could have been some it's bad advice, but in this fluke situation, it worked. So I always think it's important to, when you give advice, to give that person the steps that took you to get to that advice, because even if they don't get to the same conclusion as me, they're still going to have useful data from someone who's somewhat successful professionally. Yeah. And not giving, um, or, you know, restraining yourself from giving this unsolicited advice is not very common. I think most people do tend to give unsolicited advi advice at some point. And it's point. often terrible. I'll give you, and, give you an example. Yeah. Just be yourself. What does that mean? And my, I'm myself when I'm taking a shit, I'm myself in the bedroom, and I'm, my, I'm myself when I'm eating lunch and there's food all over my face. What it, that, that advice is meaningless. So I really resent when people give advice and it's something – just sit down and talk to him. There's no possibility that the person asking for advice hasn't considered that. So whenever I also give advice, I try to be counterintuitive as much as possible. Yeah. And thought provoking. And how did you how did you come to this? Um, I don't know approach to life. Oh, it, was there like every, a yeah? Oh, yeah was, every Russian, yeah. Every cab driver, everyone who you meet in who's Russian will immediately start telling you what you're doing wrong and what you should do differently. <laughs> and I resent it and despise it, and it's infuriating. So that to me is absolutely a reaction against my upbringing. Yeah, it sounds a little bit like Middle Eastern families too. I mean, maybe it's a common thing among immigrants. It's not just families; it's also yeah. strangers. Yeah, like yeah. If you got an Uber in, in in Russia. It's like, where are you born? Ukraine. Oh, you should be speaking Ukrainian. Shut the fuck up. Put up the divider. I don't know you. Yeah. So, but here's you, the other thing, Justin. I think you, you. I mean, you're a politician. Like, I'm not saying that pejorative way. But I think a lot of times there's a great essay by Josh Olson called I Will Not Read Your Screenplay. A lot mm -hmm. of times when people ask for advice, they don't want advice. They want validation. They want to be told. You're yeah, doing the right I think that's right. Yeah. So, and when you try to give them advice, they get resentful. Yeah. So do you do you vote? You said you've no. talked about you talked about of course not. you talked about not voting before. Now, there are some people who say you have to vote in self-defense. Because you're yep. in this, you know, you're in the political system, and they vote at least in the sense of, you know, defending themselves against what's going on. 
How's that working out for them? Doesn't well, work. I, th- I think not well, but right. you know, I, I, I do. I do vote full disclosure, but but you but, have to vote. Why do I have to vote? Because you, you can't run for office and be like, oh yeah, I've never voted. That's crazy. Yeah, I, I agree with you about that. I think that it that. And I gotta say, yeah. it's it's. I gotta tell you, it's got to be really fun to be able to vote for yourself. Yeah, you know, I don't think about it much when I go and do it, actually, but it is nice. Yeah, it's I mean, fun to it's see like, there. Look at sure. that, yeah. It's nice you're on the ballot. Yeah, <laughs> but, of course. But I really don't – I don't think about it that much when I go to the ballot. Never never really thought about it that much when I was um, – that I'm going to go vote for myself. But So tell me a little bit about um, your experience in North Korea. Oh, sure. You've never been? It's no, I've never long. been. And I I know some people who have been to North Korea, um, but – I've never really, I think, been you know talking to someone where you can tell me about like a real experience there, where you were actually there um, and spent a considerable amount of time and you know talked to North Koreans. I, I think I talked to someone who was there on I don't know maybe there was some kind of governmental issue, but I sure you know. So I wrote a great article about it for uh, Reason, which is a progressive magazine. For those of you who don't know. Um, called my week in North Korea. Uh, the best way I could sum it up is like it's like going to another planet back in time. So it's really there's nothing analogous to it whatsoever. At the very least, just give you I'll give you one example. They take your phones at the airport. So imagine being away for a week where you literally have no information about the outside world, nor way of accessing it. That's something that any of us regard as completely impossible. Like if something bad happens to you, even on like if you're in some weird island in Bali, I don't know, or, you know, some place, you know, okay, I could call my wife, I get a hold of my mom. It's not happening. So to be in this bubble on earth and have right away, you lose concept of time because you don't know what day it is because every day kind of runs into the other. You have to be there as part of a guided tour, which sounds a lot crazier than it is. People go on guided tours of New York, you know, London all the time. So it's not that, you know, weird. The guides are, are pretty cool. Um, the thing that uh, people think that when you go there, you're shown this like amazing paradise. It's not. Everywhere you look, literally, something is wrong. If the elevator has 10 buttons, one will be mismatched. Every car, Every carpet has a stain. Every wall has a crack. The urinals are going to be rusted out. Everywhere I went, and this is also biblical, there was a fly, even on the airplane, which is like such a sign of evil. Um, you go to their central park, it's got mildew. At night, Pyongyang, their capital city, you have to have a very high social score to even step foot in Pyongyang. Half the city doesn't have electricity. So you can't help. And the thing is, what people really need to appreciate, it, communism could work if human beings were robots. These are They're so normal that it makes it, 10 times more heartbreaking when you see them cracking jokes and hanging out and realizing there, but for the grace of God, could, that was my family. That's what we had to go through with Stalin. It was even Stalin wasn't as bad in many ways as what they're going through right now. And I remember I was on Fox and friends first when Trump got some of these hostages out and they're like, you know, what's your big concern with the upcoming talks between president Trump and Kim Jong-un? I'm like the continued enslavement of the North Korean people. Like, that is always my concern. What's your concern about Russia, Ukraine? The Russians and the Ukrainians. You know, North Korea, my concern is the people. That's always the concern. And I think a lot of times, uh, this really bothered me a lot when they were talking with Trump and Kim Jong un and the corporate media reporters were just desperate to make Trump, Trump out to be an asshole. It's like, if this falls apart, 
it's not haha Trump. It's like these people are still trapped in their giant prison for another four years. That's not funny. It's funny in a certain context. It's not in that, this context. Yeah. So you were supportive of Trump making overtures to um, I, yeah, Kim Jong Un. I, I would yeah. try anything. Yeah. And at the, I I, I'm with you on that. 100% with you on that. And I was very supportive in this fact that he made it such an important issue because during Obama, and I'm not saying to criticize Obama because I don't know what I would have done if he, if I was president, but like they didn't know what to do, so they didn't talk about it. So the fact that this was a forefront issue and he had that refugee holding up his crutch at the State of the Union, I thought that was really great because it's really easy to forget what these people are going through. And why do you think – what do you think motivated someone like Donald Trump? I think he thought this was going to be a possible big win for him. I think he thought he'd be able to speak to Kim Jong-un in his own language, which he was very good at doing. He didn't get enough credit for that. Um, I think he thought this could be a, you know, kind of a big win for him. And I, my understanding, you know better than me, is that you know, when they had that meeting, President Obama and President Trump, you know, that, that day when they had that handover, Obama sat him down and said North Korea is our biggest problem. So I, I, I don't think he took that lightly. Yeah, because Trump obviously had different positions with things like Cuba, where he tried to push it in the other direction, um, you know, sort of closing it down a little more and not engaging yeah. as much. But, yeah, I think that he probably did see it as a big win. And actually, it's it's one of the things where I, I think it was good to see the effort. It was good to see someone from, you know, some a president go out and make an effort to try to address the issue, even if it yeah. didn't get anywhere. Um, so... When you talked about North Korea and you said they have a social credit system, I was trying to understand how are they doing this because they don't do they have you know they're you not ready? using yeah they're you not ready? using iPhones right or do they go ahead check this out you know when I'm doing the research it's like the thing people need to appreciate is that these totalitarian governments are brilliant you can't stay in power for like seventy years by accident you're clearly doing something right even if it's pure evil. So there were several iterations of this, and also their language is always clever. So they had something called the Understanding People Project. I want to understand people. You want to understand people. It's great, right? What's wrong with that? They interviewed everyone in the country, everyone, and they figured out what your family was doing before the Fatherland Liberation War, the Korean War. So you, Korea was one country since time immemorial, according to them, and it only got split in half as a result of World War II. They're not wrong. When they say, we weren't fighting in World War II, why are we the only country getting split with Germany? Like, that, and they're right. Like, it's completely a historical and, uh, accident that this country, which was not even a belligerent in World War II, was a colony of Japan, was split in half. So they interviewed everyone. Where were you born? If you're in the South, that's bad. If you're North, it's good. What was your family? Priests, bad. We fought. We were communists with the great leader Kim Il-sung. That's really good. Everyone in the country is divided into three castes, favorable, wavering, or hostile. And there's subdivisions. I think there's 51 subdivisions, right? You can marry. It's much easier for your rank to go down than it is to go up, right? You don't know your score. It determines everything about your life, including where you live. If you have a poor sungbun, a poor credit score, you're not allowed to step foot in uh, Pyongyang, capital city, and you can't live near the borders or the ocean. So they shove them in the northeast. When the food is scarce, guess who's getting food last? The people with the poor sungbun. So this was used as a mechanism for food allocation. And people starved 
because of who their ancestors, their grandparents or great grandparents were. Uh, so this is their system, and the the teachers know. So the kids with a good sangbun are going to get treated better than kids with a bad sangbun. Hmm. And, it's, and it, it's 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 brilliant and terrifying. And and what do you think is the ultimate end game for? the leadership there. So when, and I don't know if Kim Jong-un really runs the country. I mean, yes, he does. Yeah. He, you think he's yes. the one actually calling the shots? Yes. There's no dispute really. Yeah. The, it's not, there's no deep state there. It's, it's the Kim family. They, every time and there's, there's only been three leaders in North Korea, the great leader, Kim Il-sung, the dealer, Kim Jong-il and Marshal Kim Jong-un. Every time that they take over, they have a purge of the previous people and the people in power are in power. I mean, the, the like elites are in power, not because they're smart or they're charismatic. They're in power specifically due to their loyalty to the leader. So there is an enormous incentive to be loyal an enormous disincentive to be disloyal. Plus, as I said earlier, everyone is snitching on each other. Once a week in North Korea, you have something called criticism and self-criticism sessions, and you have to get up with your group maybe just school your neighborhood. And I say, I was late to school on Tuesday and I saw Justin cheating on a test. And Justin has to see like, I did this and I saw Dave doing something and so, so other. They do this at the very top too. Mm-hmm. So you, if I would say, I saw Justin talking to Massey, right now it's a conspiracy. And it's I'm incentivized to keep my eye out on all my rivals and report to the leader to make sure no one's doing any hanky-panky. Well, what's the end game? Like what is what is the ultimate goal? Because they must recognize that the country's not doing well. Or does it does that not matter to the leaders there? Right because because as long as the Kim family's doing okay, that's what counts. Correct. They had polio in the nineties. Polio came back. Yeah. Yeah. They don't care. It's only about maintaining the leaders' hold on power, and they've been very good at it. And a country like South Korea now. There's no incentive really for them to unite with North Korea, right? I mean, what well, would other than like some? First of all, I think there is some some semblance of brotherhood, but that's fading, of course, because it's been 70 years. The languages are becoming different. Um, but yeah, I mean, the cost. I mean, this is a big issue with the Germanys because West Germany is like we've got this basically welfare shithole, and now we got to you know make it a part of us. It's it's just going to cost us an enormous amount of money, and these people don't even know how to use a computer. Yeah. So it's it's really an unfortunate situation, to put it mildly, and, and it's just heartbreaking. And ultimately, do you think there's anything to do about this other than negotiations? Like, there's a, is there any? There's no there's no other method, right? Just the United States keeps talking to the Kim family, and that's it. Look at Ukraine. Look at Libya. Kim Jong Un knows what's going to happen if he denuclearizes. So there's a very very hard. It, it, and the other thing is in these countries, uh, Saddam is another example. When the leaders fall, Romania, they are often correctly personally killed. So he knows if he loses power, someone's going to pull out a bullet in him, and that wouldn't be unwarranted or surprising. He's a, you know how many how much blood millions on the blood of his, uh, hands of his dad. What they do to children even now. So people need to understand that human beings respond to incentives, and all the incentives are for him to maintain his system. And when you were there, did you get any sense of China's role in all of this? No. So they have this um, mythos that it's basically us against the rest of the world. So they'll praise like Mao and Stalin, but they don't really talk about contemporary China. 
But they so, don't like the Chinese because the Chinese come over as tourists and they really treat them very poorly and they're like spitting everywhere and just being very condescending. So this is a big issue between uh, North Korean and Chinese relations. And can the North Koreans, uh, I, I think you mentioned in your um, reason essay, they can travel to Beijing. No, no, but, no, you can't leave North Korea. But if you uh, are there, you said there is a flight though between Beijing and. There's one flight. If you're a dignitary, you can leave, but your family has to stay behind as hostages. Just North Korea, uh, North Korean dignitaries only. Right. And then their families have to stay behind. Correct. And, yeah. and if anything happens, your family will be killed publicly. Yeah. And are these dignitaries government officials or are they are there's is there some kind of um, just like oligarchy in a, in a sense? I mean, the government officials are the oligarchs. Yeah, there's no because there's no real system of government other than right. It's like a gangster totalitarian. Regime. Correct. So it's horrifying. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's just um, I don't know how you resolve how you ever resolve anything like that uh, in the world. Uh, you just have to. And he you know, China doesn't yeah. want a U.S. ally in their border. You can't blame them either. So, you know, any talk of reunification, China's like, we don't need, and China doesn't want 20 million refugees crossing the Tumen River who don't speak Chinese and have never used a computer. So yeah. you can't even blame China. So these people have really got screwed by uh, us in Russia in the 40s uh, and since. Um, and, and by, of course, most importantly, the Kim family themselves and the people are the ones who are suffering. And that's where all our thoughts uh, need to be with at all times. And I don't think that anyone would disagree with that. Yeah. So going back to um, a totally different topic, because this has gotten a little bit dark here with Cash North Cab. Korea. So <laughs> are you an underwear model? Yeah, Sheath Underwear. If you go to sheathunderwear.com, use promo code MALICE, you get 20% off. <laughs> so so how did this come about? Like uh, you just because you just it was someone advertising on your podcast? So Sheath Underwear, I love Sheath. Uh, they advertise on my podcast. They've got two pouches, one for one part of your male anatomy, another part for another male anatomy. And at first I'm like, what is this? And they're really comfortable. Then I was getting good shape and my cum gutters were coming in. And I said, hey, can I do an ad for you guys? And they said, sure. So I got in very good shape for it. And we did a shoot. And uh, the photos speak for themselves. You can see them on Instagram. <laughs> and I just designed a pair uh, inspired by Dynamite. And those are out now too, limited edition. And, um, and with your... I think you've talked about this elsewhere. When you were young, you had a bit of a uh, body dysmorphic disorder. Is that correct? I just, I had, yeah, I just got it resolved in the last like two months. I never thought I'd be able to fix it. And how did that? I don't. If it's too personal, I don't. I no, don't it's know. It's not too personal. Okay. Because um, I don't want to intrude. If it is, but is it something? What What do you think? caused it you've been seeing like a therapist about it or no so what caused it is every single day when i was a kid and i'm not exaggerating i was told i was too skinny uh from my family so if someone let's suppose it's the other way if someone says to you every day how smart you are you're going to get a complex at some point like what is this fixation on my uh brain so that was the thing the first time i was hungry i had a kind of an eating disorder and uh, high school because I kept trying – they kept trying to force me to eat, force me to eat. Then it became a power struggle thing. First time I was ever hungry was I was in college. I was 100 pounds in college. I didn't think it was possible for me to gain weight. Uh, my old editor, Jeremy Ruby Strauss, sat me down one day and goes, 
if you eat more, you're going to have to gain weight. There's nowhere else for the food to go. So then I learned I could gain weight. But again, you still have a very skewed perception of, uh, of like body and, and fitness and so on and so forth. And part of the reason it started to resolve itself, um, I was at the gym and there was this kid who was just really in great shape. And I had just gone out the week before and I was out with Rogan, Elon Musk and Jordan Peterson at the Tesla factory. And I sat there and I had like this kind of, not out of body, you know, like sometimes you look at yourself and you're like, what was I thinking? And I'm like, this is what you, you did last week. And you're sitting here at the gym, jealous of this kid for what? And, and, and I, as I thought it, I'm like, there's something seriously skewed and stupid with my thinking. And then I just, it started coming like dominoes because one of the things people, you work out, don't you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things in fitness is this idea of like normies don't get it right. Like, Oh, if I had veins in my delts, like everyone think it's gross, but it's awesome. And then in one sense, it's like, yeah, normies don't get it. But like in this context, like Jordan Peterson's a normie, right? So if I got super jacked and I went to meet Jordan or anyone else I admire right away, this person's going to regard me as out group or there's something wrong with me. There's going to be this arm's length, like, okay, you're a fitness guy. You're not whatever. And I'm like, women don't like it. Like I've asked a ton of women, you know, do you think this is great? Like I, another time there was at the gym and there was a guy who had really defined lats, which are like the back muscles. Mm-hmm. And I sat there and I go, I have talked to lots of female friends for years. I have never once in my life ever heard them say, I want a guy with a defined back. That's not a thing. <laughs> So you're less attractive to women. You're not respected by people who you admire. In fact, they regard you as weird or compensating. My clothes started to fit hard. Like I, I have a denim collection. I couldn't fit in some of my jeans. In the fitness mindset, hell yeah, it's working. My quads are big. But then it's like, how is it a good thing that I can't wear the clothes I want? People in my career wouldn't respect me more, especially at my height. Like if I got really jacked, like these guys who like on, on Instagram who I follow, they look amazing in, in photos, but in person, they look ridiculous because when you're short and jacked, it doesn't look good. It looks silly. So all of these things kind of started falling into place. So it, it, it was like, I, I don't know. It was just amazing. So are you, I assume you're not against weight training at all though, right? It's just no, that there's I'm, a... I'm against this idea that unless you're like a, a bodybuilder, you look like shit. That's ridiculous. Oh, yeah. That's – yeah, I agree with you. But that's body dysmorphia. But that's yeah. body dysmorphia. Yeah, this view that you have to look like a, like a bodybuilder or someone who's a professional. Or a fitness model, yeah. 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 It's, it's like it's, – it's, it, it, it is like someone who has $100 million sitting you down and telling you, unless I'm a billionaire, I'm poor. Like where do you even start, right? It's like, oh, unless I look like this guy in the picture, I look like shit. The guy in the picture doesn't look like that. He looks like that in the picture because he trained to look like that for the picture. But going day to day, he's not you know, looking like that. And even if he is, when you see a guy covered in veins, it's impressive for two minutes, but doesn't make you want to be his friend or ask for his advice. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like, oh, that looks cool. Yeah. So were you trying to get jacked for a long time, like just lifting weights extensively? And Yeah. Now, <clears throat> did you find it difficult at, at – um... I don't know. Like people just have different bodies. So like, is it, was it difficult to do so? It was difficult, but not as difficult as I thought it would be. Yeah. yeah and you were eating, like 
uh, protein shakes and doing all this, the watching your diet and all that kind of the stuff. Macros. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. It's a process. Yeah. And do you still, do you still do weight training? Absolutely. And I think it's great for mental health because if you're in a rut, maybe you're out of work, maybe you're single, you can at least have quantifiable data that things are improving in your life in one direction. And when you have that, it's very hard to be depressed or anxious because if you're having some demonstrable progress, things become easier. So what is it specifically about your mindset that changed? Do you, you view it now as more of a, it's just a part of living your life is you do some weight training, but it is not, uh, it's not an obsession with the sense of getting to some specific goal. I've reached that goal. Like you can't yeah. tell me that if I can pull off an underwear ad looking half decent, that anyone's going to think I have a bad, that I look gross, Yeah. but that's the mindset, right? Or like if I go to the gym and the bench is taken and I can only do four of my five lifts that day, I'm not going to let it ruin my day because logically I already knew that missing one lift is going to be statistically irrelevant, but you have this mindset that like, it's very like, it's, it's, it's a uh, like fight or famine, right? Or feast or famine. Like unless everything goes right, what's the point? It's a disaster. And that's stupid and crazy. Yeah. 100%. And like, if you get, if you get injured and you can't deadlift for three weeks, it sucks. But to have it be regarded in your mind as a catastrophe, that makes no sense. Yeah. But that's the mindset. Yeah, I can see that. Um, let's go to let's let's take a caller. I'll let you sure. I'll let you go in a f- few minutes, but we'll yeah. take, uh, let's take a caller. We've got um, Anna. We'll see if she's still Hello? there. Hello. Hi. Is it Anna or Anna? Anna. Anna. Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Good. Okay. So I have. Um, my mom is Russian. She fled Stalin. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. And I fled California to Montana. So I'm here now practicing my anarchy. But And my kids make fun of me because everything is Michael Malice, Michael Malice, Michael Malice. And so I just want to tell you, I love you and you make me happy. And I think you really make a lot of people happy because I'm black-pilled so much. And then I listen to your podcast and it just, it makes me feel better. So I had to tell you that. Wait, so can I just I, say something? How yeah. can you look at the enemy class and think we can't win? These are not impressive people. Well, what's really funny is I was talking to my sister-in-law because we're both kind of black-pilled most of the time. And I told her the same thing. I said, Michael Malice said, how can we possibly be afraid of these idiots? So no, you could be afraid and you could think they're going to win, but you can't think, well, there's no hope. It's you can't look at Stephen Colbert and be like, I can uh, there's no way I can outpropagandize this guy. Really? The vaccine where he's dancing around with syringes? This is a buffoon. Well, that's why I listen to you. So you can keep oh. telling me that. So I mean, so you're just But am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. I mean, I literally all I talk about is you. My husband's like Stop it already. And I have your books. My kids <laughs> bought me your books for Mother's Day. So I'm a little bit obsessed and I listen to everywhere you go. And Justin, um, I don't want to take too much time because I know there's a lot of callers, but Justin, I loved you, then I hated you, and now I love you again. And <laughs> Thanks. I, just, I know. And I was so mean to you on Twitter, but anyway, whatever. That's neither here nor there. Um, I just have one question, just one, and make it quick so that other callers can come on. 
I understand impeaching presidents because I kind of feel like they all should be impeached. I don't, I'm like with Michael Mellis, I don't want to vote. I'll do local. But do you think that you impeaching Trump for the reason, I understand your reasoning behind it, meaning like, well, I was going to impeach this one and that one, and I'm not going to change my mind because it's a Republican. I get that. But do you really think that the reason why you voted to impeach was really impeachable? Yes. And, <laughs> and I would <laughs> – so I just to keep it simple, I would impeach – basically every president of yeah. the last, you know, I don't know, a couple of decades at least, and maybe before that, uh, I certainly would have voted to impeach Obama over Libya as an example. Uh-huh. And there are many other impeachable offenses. And I'm sure Trump committed multiple impeachable offenses that I'd go for. And I'm sure Biden will too. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a believer that the executive branch is way out of whack. Like it's, it's way over the line in what it's doing. They abuse power left and right. And um, I think I think we don't have enough impeachments. So the issue is, if you put an if you put an impeachment resolution in front of me, there's a good chance I will vote for it. Um, if there's an actual offense in there, if there's something that I think the executive is doing wrong. Now there are different people who have different strategies on this, and they can have different perspectives on on whether you should impeach, even if you think it is impeachable. But that, that's my take on it. I I'd, I'd also impeach Biden. I'd impeach Obama, okay. depending for impeachable offenses yeah um but i was just wondering about that i mean just because i really don't like trump anymore either and i was just kind of like i'd probably impeach him over other things but um i just wanted that quick answer i didn't mean to no no problem i just think that sometimes people get into well you're a libertarian uh, why are you impeaching well libertarians are against executive abuse of power and executive overreach so you know, I, yeah. No, I'm with you. I hated I, every president since George W. Bush. I mean, I hate them all. I don't think I've, I don't think I've yet to like a president. So Reagan, but I was too young. Yeah. So you know. And well, it, thank you so much. Thanks, Anna. Yeah, I appreciate thanks it. So much. Thank you. Bye. Yep. Take care. Thank yeah, you. and it doesn't mean I like Nancy Pelosi or any of those people. I criticize her every day too. So I don't know. What a, a what a sh- what a shitty Mother's Day gift. Jesus <laughs> oh, so, a great Mother's Day gift! I cried. Are you joking? I couldn't believe okay. my I could not believe my. In, in fact, my twenty one year old. They're both at UCLA. My twenty and twenty one year old. And just so you know, they're like to the right Christian. They're not. Um, and they're they're not indoctrinated by UCLA at all, but. Good. I cannot believe like he remembered that I was like, and he's listening right now. So um, I couldn't believe I'm like, how did you remember that I wanted this book from Michael Malice? So yes, it was the best book ever. So, well, one of the best books, but you know what I mean? Thank you. Sure. Thanks, Anna. Okay. We got time for another question or we we could ask whatever's up to you, Justin. Uh, Okay. Let's, uh, I'm going to go to, Amanda. Amanda, are you there? She's muted. Okay, can you hear me now? Yeah. Hey, Amanda. My question is for Justin. It's the most important question of our time. Um, (laughs) Wait, wait. What do you like? I know what you're going to ask. You're going to ask him what he likes best about me. Oh no! Why, well, but why do you have to interrupt the question? Because <laughs> oh, go ahead, Amanda. <laughs> it's the most important question. What do you like best about Michael Malice? 
I like that he is genuine. Defined like, delts. Defined delts. Not his delts or his lats. But I like that he's genuine. I don't run into too many people in my line of work, which has been politics over the past decade or more, um, who actually say what they think. Now, he like there's trolling, obviously, but I think it's part of a strategy. That's my you know my take on it. I feel like he has a set of beliefs and he's going full on with those beliefs. And I never feel like Michael is telling you something that he doesn't actually believe in. I think that he, you know, he is a genuine person and that, that has a lot of value in my book. Like I do not run into people like that very often actually in politics. And I would say Michael's sort of in the political world in a sense, because he's, he's dealing with political stuff. So that's what I'll say. So let's go to, yeah. Thanks, Amanda. Let's go to, um, Carter and, Michael, if you got to go, like, just let me. Let yeah, me know. we can. I, I can do after this question. Okay. Carter. <laughs> God, this is such a boomer you stuff. Take is care. the car there? <laughs> okay. All right, Frank. You just couldn't pronounce that first person's name. That's why he's. No, I, he's just he's been on before. Oh, okay. Frank. Hey, good, Frank. Good evening, gentlemen. Hey, Frank. Hello. Um, let me just say, first of all, that Michael is one of the greatest minds of our generation. That's his, not saying much. His <laughs> Have you seen out there? To... It's me and Dave Smith. This is not really a, <laughs> it's a very big stage. His reply to Katie Hochul, the uh, de facto governor of New York, was amazing. And I really appreciate it because my kid is suffering or was suffering because of her ridiculous mass mandates. Oh, so, that's hard. That thank you, Michael. Heart here. Um, my question is, yeah, following up on the other one, do you have any regrets that that call for impeachment of Trump, who was probably the greatest president in the last 50 years, <laughs> was based on lies <laughs> that was Soros-funded and, and Clinton Foundation-funded? Hey, th- thanks for the question, Frank. First, I don't know whether he was the best president of the last 50 years. I, I personally think he was a pretty bad president. Um, expanded our wars, expanded civil asset forfeiture. I could go on and on about the things he did. I think, um, unfortunately, that all got you know swept under the rug where people weren't paying any attention to what was going on. He bombed Afghanistan like no one's business. Somalia expanded the stuff in Yemen. Uh, those things, I think, are, are horrific, and he was involved in that. Uh, he was bad on criminal justice reform. I could so go on. So why not impeach him for that? You because did the, the, the fake because, stuff. Because the, those resolutions weren't brought up. So you, you vote on what's in front of you. And in, what was in front of me was a resolution that was valid. And we didn't impeach on um, – the Mueller report, first of all, was not an impeachment. We didn't – there was actually no vote, vote on that. Moreover, well, people, that that people often – no, but if you read what I wrote at the time – which it seems like maybe you didn't, or or no, I just didn't did, follow. and it was it was all based on a fake, a phony investigation. So the Mueller report has two parts. Part one is about whether there's collusion with Russia. I agreed that there was no collusion with Russia. I agreed with that. Part is two, this literally every episode of your podcast. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. But no, it's not. But I don't. I don't mind taking this on because I think this is something people often get wrong. They think that. 
what I was calling for was impeachment over Russia collusion. But actually, Russia collusion was found not to have sufficient evidence. So I said that. I said on Twitter at the time that I, I actually called for impeachment, I said there was no uh, tribal evidence of Russia collusion. But that you could still impeach him and should impeach him on obstruction of Congress and obstruction of justice. So we, we shouldn't conflate the two things. The, the fact that there was no Russia collusion doesn't mean that the executive can overreach and abuse power. Because otherwise, you'd have um, people who actually do commit crimes who would then overreach to hide their crimes, and then you'd find no evidence of the crime, and then you couldn't impeach them on the obstructing. That wouldn't make any sense. So you have to separate these ideas. These are separate topics. What uh, was the crime? Because they did impeach and they couldn't find anything. No, that's not true. The second part of the Mueller report found impeachable offenses. And, um, and that's like where what? I went with it. Now, we're not going to go through the whole Mueller report now. You can read, you can read all the tweets. I wrote like, I don't know, 100-something tweets on this. So you can well, read all that. And, and you didn't, uh, no, they were, no, 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 no. They were, they were very – they were not very vague. They were very specific, Frank. So go, you can go and read them. They're very specific. And I, as I said, I said in part one of the Mueller report, they didn't find any uh, impeachable evidence of Russia collusion. That's a very different thing from part two. So I encourage everyone to go read the tweets. I, I think this is a common thing. People come onto my Twitter and they misrepresent this stuff all the time. And I think actually this is a TDS of the right, like a weird obsession with defending Trump, who was a warmonger, a guy who was abusive on uh, civil asset forfeiture and a whole bunch of other things, and coming in and defending him for, um, I don't know, for what reason, because the left doesn't like him. But I'm allowed to not like him for this stuff and for other stuff, just like the left doesn't have to like him. I mean, it's, libertarians don't have to agree with Trump on anything. It's just unfortunate and, uh, that that's and I, your legacy. And I don't think so. It's, it's my legacy in your mind. No, Google your name. <laughs> All right. It's my legacy in your mind. That's okay. Google yourself. All right. But I think – I think if I think I'll go Google myself. I think I think if you're still thinking about this, I think it's more indicative of something with you than it is with me. Like I I have not I have not talked to I I have not been talking about Trump's impeachment. You you brought it up, so I haven't been talking. We Michael and I didn't talk about it the the whole time. So because it's your legacy. Justin, okay. you shouldn't mock the audience. It's bad All right. strategy. Yeah. It causes distrust and totalitarianism. <laughs> All right. Okay, Frank. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> so everyone who is nicer than me gets a thousand times more crap than I do, and I don't understand why, but I love it. <laughs> it comes with the territory. You know, when you're in Congress, when you're in Congress, you take votes. Some people get really I guess obsessed with certain votes. You know, I I do what I, I do. I don't think that's it. I think there's lots of people who like 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 Tom Woods gets a lot more crap than I do. He's like a thousand times kinder of a person than I am, am and he just gets so much more crap. Well, do you think maybe it's partly because people view you as almost I, I don't know if satirical is the right word, but um I don't know the, why. I have no theories. It doesn't make sense. I should be getting a lot more hate. 
I don't I'm, know. I'm a nasty piece of work. And there are, are people. Well, we see your we see your replies on Twitter. People people dig into you a little bit. Yeah, but it's not as bad as you get. Yeah, I can't speak for Tom Woods. I think that it's it comes with the territory being in Congress. People are entitled to come in and say, sure, sure. I don't. I don't agree with you on this or, you know, that vote was terrible. And I, I respect Frank's position that he thinks that too. I just disagree with him. And I think that there can come a time where if you've read my explanations and, and heard what I said about it, and I've explained it again, and you're still, this is like your big thing, your big holdup. I think it's more of a TDS on the person's part than on my part. Like I, you know, I, I vote and would have done the same thing, whether it was a Democrat, Republican or anyone. And I will do the same thing if if I ever were back in politics. I do the same thing with any other president, regardless of party. Um, if there's some indication for for someone to come in and accuse me of being like a, a shill for either the left or the right, whoever, you got to provide evidence of it. And there's no evidence in my history of any sort of you know politicking to appease Nancy Pelosi right. or or. You know, the deep state or something. I, I literally – this is another point I didn't bring up. I literally wrote the bill and the amendment to stop FISA. And then, right. tr- and then Trump uh, issued a veto threat against my effort and then signed the FISA reauthorization into law. So I've got plenty of reasons to have you know, problems with Trump. And I would have the same problem and did have the same problem with Biden. Uh, I do with Biden now and I did with Obama then. So okay, Justin, I have to bounce. Let me ask. Yeah, you yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Will you here and now endorse for president Marjorie Taylor Greene? No. <laughs> I'll take that as a guess. I will not. <laughs> so I, on that on that cheery note, I want to say um, thank you to Michael. Uh, it it really is a pleasure. Next time I will. Um, I mean, I hope you'll come back on again, and. Hopefully we'll get the audio issues settled and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll come prepared with more, more than an hour's worth of, uh, content, here's some, but here's some advice. When you're yeah. Yeah. Show, oh, wait, you're not supposed to give out. me advice. You're not supposed I, to give me advice. We're not friends. Here's some advice. When, you, <laughs> when you're signing off on a show, don't remind the audience of all the screw ups, remind them of all the good parts. Well, we have met. Why are you closing and reminding them of the mistakes? That makes no sense. Yeah. Okay. Right. I'm with, yeah. I'm with like, you. Yeah, I'm with you, but I am glad that you confirmed you're not my friend on the on the way you're, out. You're an agent of the state. You're All right. The wall, buddy. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Michael. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Uh, and thanks, thanks to everyone for listening. Take care.